I know sometimes the struggles seem long. Days seem like problems are never ending. But you, from time to time, need to take a look into an inventory of your life and recognize that you serve a great God, that you should not be here had it been not for his mercy and his grace. And let, 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 me, let, let me define the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. He gives you both of them. And he says, go ahead, son. Go ahead, daughter. Go in peace. Amen, amen, amen. Let's get to the preaching, okay? I would do this all day. I hear these testimonies all day. They ready to lift my soul. They lift my soul. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Here we'll be taking a look at verses 42. And 45, through 45. Again, Mark 10, 42 through 45. It says, But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, You know that which are counted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And for a little while this afternoon, I just want to talk to you on this, this message. Servant of all. Servant of all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we, we come before you today, God, and, and we thank you mightily for the things that you've been doing in our lives just individually and corporately, God. And we, right now, God, Lord, we come before you and I pray for each and every individual here, Lord, that we would get a hold and get an understanding, Lord, of how to live for you unabashedly, unashamed, with a full out authority, Lord, to walk in the ways, to, to, to lean unto you, Lord. I pray for this church right now, Lord, that you begin to speak to this congregation, Lord, for this preacher, Lord. Take away anything that would be not of you, but make it from you, Lord, to your people today, God. I pray most importantly, God, that this word that go forth may not just be for today, Lord, but may be a word for Monday, for Tuesday, for Wednesday, for Thursday, for Friday, Lord. For all those days in between, long after the songs have been played, long after the preacher's done preaching, God, continue to speak to us in your precious and mighty name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Uh, earlier in my career, um, I, I began work as a personal trainer, and that's really what I started out as. And 
I enjoyed it. And one of the main reasons I enjoyed it is simply because it, in personal training, you have the ability to meet people from different places and different spaces. And, and you can, you, you, you find that people are, are different. People are different on all levels. And I, I had one client particularly, his name was Richard. And Richard was a, he was a, a uh, general contractor. He actually was a contractor for what you would call homes in, in the St. Paul area. Anybody in here from Minnesota? Brother John, anybody familiar with Minnesota? Familiar, okay, I got another one. You're from Minnesota. But if you're familiar with Minnesota, there's an area in Minnesota called Grand or Summit. And on, on Grand or Summit, they have houses. The equivalent would be if, if you were to go to Lakeshore Drive in Wisconsin. And these houses are the houses that J Richard was, he was a general contractor for. And so let me explain what a general contractor does is he simply is the point person for renovations. So if you have a house that you want to get flipped, okay, and you've got plumbing, if you've got paint that needs to be done, if you've got flooring that needs to be done, you essentially, you dedicate one point person to take care of all of those jobs. And they coordinate the jobs so that the stuff can get done at a proper time. They can get done at, at the right time and you pay the right amount for it. And so Richard, this was his job. This is what he did. And, and, and he used to work on a lot of these homes in that St. Paul area. And these, these are wealthy homes. I got a chance to go into one one time. And these are homes that begin to make you rethink life. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Folks, you got so much money, I don't even know what to do with it. Just sick with money. Five, six ba bathroom homes. You only got three rooms. You got six bathrooms. I got a chance to go in one of those homes. I got back to my two, 300-foot-square apartment. I started rethinking life, man. They had more, they had more square footage in their bathroom than I had in my whole apartment. You know? You, you really start thinking about stuff then. But, but Richard, he would renovate these homes, and he was telling me this story one time about a, a particular house that he had, and the owners had wanted him to do some, some work on it, and they, they, they were having, having custom-made granite countertops put into their home. Now, the issue with these is that the, the, the granite countertops that they had being put into their homes, that they, they were installed at the tune of $70,000. No, not, seven, not 700, not 7,000. $70,000 granite countertops. And so he says, you know, he says, you know, Nick, I was, I sat there and I, I, I was trying to scratch my head. And, you know, at this point in time, I'm trying to figure out what in the world do these people do? What, what, what kind of money are these people pulling in right now? And so he says, he says that the, the, the wife came down the stairs and she came down and she told him, she says, look, my husband will be up at noon and he'll take care of all of the payments. He's going to take care of that. He'll be up at noon to go to work. And right before he goes to work, he, he'll make sure you're square. And so Richard says, you know, I, I'm sitting there scratching my head. And he says, I know what she does through talking to her. He figured out that she worked for the city of St. Paul. And so I can look up her salary online and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a decent salary. You know, it's, it's nothing to sneeze at. You know, she makes decent money, but not, not for those $70,000 countertops. And so Richard's like, okay, it's not her. Okay, I got to figure out where in the world is this money coming from? And so he, he, he goes about his business and he's, he's, he's sitting there and he's, you know, organizing and getting, making sure all the contractors are paid and making sure the workers come in. And sure enough, the, the, the husband, he comes down the stairs. 
And sure enough, he begins to talk with the, 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 the man, and, and the man gets into a Mercedes Benz, and it, just like she said, at noon, he speeds off to work. What turns out, you know what this guy did? He was a waiter. He was a waiter at a place called Manny's Steakhouse in Minneapolis. I don't know if you know anything about Manny's, but Manny's is a high-end steakhouse. Okay, one of the most highest-end steakhouses in the Twin Cities area. Many of the bills that you walk out with there are in the thousands. Can you put that next slide up here? Okay, you can't see this, but this is a sample of a bill. The total bill for this dinner was $2,359.92. Okay, this is where a lot of CEOs actually take their parties and their clients and, 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 and at pro athletes, the Minnesota Vikings, the, the Minnesota Timberwolves will actually take their draft picks in here when they have these dinner parties. And so many of the wait staff at Manny's Steakhouse are actually older men. They've been there for the entire point in time from when this restaurant started because many of these guys started working these jobs when they were in college. And many of them were studying to be doctors and lawyers. But what ended up happening is they did the math on this thing and they figured out Your tea, sir. <laughs> no student debt. No law debt. They were making more than that they would have, and they didn't have to pay anything back. Servant. Now, that's the shock value of the story, is that this man was making enough to live in a mansion, okay, in St. Paul on Grand, working as a servant. Servanthood. It's one of the most underappreciated, undervalued, undernoticed, underpaid in most instances roles within our society. Servanthood cleans up messes. It cares about the experience of others and their comfort above one's self. That's servanthood. Servanthood is not in the limelight. It takes place after the hours. It doesn't garner the attention or the recognition. In fact, we usually don't know that the work is going on or that the work's getting done until it doesn't get done, and then we turn around and look at look where the servant's at. Servanthood. If you, if you linger long enough after this service, after the, the worship team has gotten done worshiping and after the preacher's preached his last words, what you will find is you, you, you'll find... Brother Tim slowly taking out the garbage. That's servanthood. You, you have to stay, stay around. If, if you if you if you if you come on a Tuesday, if you come a little bit early at five o'clock, what you'll find is Sister Shanita cleaning up the place. That's servanthood. You you don't see it when it takes place, but that's servanthood. If you if 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 you ever need some more time, come on a Saturday morning and watch how the bathroom gets done. Go down there with Brother Joe and see, see, see what he's doing. That's servanthood. It takes place outside of the eyes of the operations of, of anything at all. 
Here's what people will do. People will willingly sacrifice and be a servant to something that they actually feel has a cause, something that has value, something that begins to transcend their current state of being. And because of that, if there is the right cause, people will take the lowest of positions and they will sacrifice their time, they'll sacrifice their ideas, they'll sacrifice their motives, they'll sacrifice their agendas, they will even even sacrifice their lives if the cause is right. The Bible says that the shepherd boy named David walked into an Israelite army, walked into a camp, and he walks into this camp and he begins to ask questions because the army's sitting around the entire time. Goliath had been yelling insults at them for 40 days and 40 nights. David poses the question, he says, is there not a cause? What's the reason? Give me some fight, man. Is there some reason you joined the army? What's your motivation right now for putting a sword on and putting the armor on? Is there not a cause? Don't you have a bite? Give me some fight. Give me some, give me some dog. Give me something that tells me there's a cause of why you joined the army. Is there not a cause? What's your cause? What's your cause? And so the first, the first point that I want to bring to you this, this, this morning, this afternoon is who or what is it that you serve? Who or what is it that you serve? To me right now, you're serving your children. You're serving your grandchildren. You're not fully operating of where you could be or where you want to be because you see a better life for where your, your kids or your grandkids could be. Some of you right now are sacrificing for your kids. For some of you right now, you're in a relationship with a man or woman that's less than, and you're not doing yourself any favors. Being in that relationship is a relationship of misuse and abuse, and you're unequally yoked with somebody that has no intention of pursuing Jesus Christ. But the reason right now you're sacrificing is because you're afraid of being alone. In other words, you value being with anybody rather than nobody. Some of you in here are struggling with addictions. Addictions to drugs, addictions to alcohol, cigarettes. And to that, you've become a servant. It's made you a slave. It's caused you to do things that have had you operating at a lower level of far below the expectations that God has for you. Because what you value, you value the next high that you can get. You value what the drug, what the alcohol, what the cigarette gives you is that ability to escape reality. You become a servant. If some of you right now, you're thinking, I can't think of anything that I serve. I really don't serve anything. I can tell you that you're still serving something. You serve mediocrity. Some of you right now, you're serving status quo because you're stuck. And what you serve right now is you serve comfort. And God is looking to stretch you. He's been telling you that this is not the place that I have for you. And he's been trying to move you in a different direction. But you serve comfort. You serve control. You serve things that you can predict, things that you can count on. Everyone is a servant to someone or something. And the question this afternoon is, who are you serving? Second point I want to bring you this afternoon. Servanthood is not about what you want to do. Servanthood is about what you value. 
Servanthood is ultimately about what you value. I'm going to pause for a second there, and we're going to transition back to the opening text. You pull it up for me. Opening text is from Mark chapter 10. When we start in Mark chapter 10, I'm going to give you some context, give you a little bit of backdrop here. Mark chapter 10 begins, and there are only 16 chapters in Mark. That's it. Okay, Mark's one of the shortest gospels. Okay, but Mark chapter 10 lets you know that we're at this point in time 60% through the gospel of Mark. One of the primary themes that Jesus had been trying to articulate to his disciples, and he'd been telling this to them from the beginning of the gospel, in the middle of the gospel, he told them toward the end of the gospel, he'd been telling them the entire time, I am going to die. I'm going to die. And he said this consistently. He said it so many different ways, but he said it consistently. I am going to die. But you get the picture. I don't know about you, but I, I get, sometimes my mind gets, I get picture images in my mind when I read these stories. And you get the picture. The disciples never really understood that this man was serious. You know, you know, you, know, you explain something to somebody and they nod their head. And you know they don't know what you what you saying. You know they missed every everything you didn't try to explain to them. This is Michelle. You, you, you're in a classroom. You know when you got that student right there, and you're trying to explain the problem to them, and, and they just sitting here like this and say, "You don't know what you're talking about, do you?" No. But that's the picture that I've always gotten is that Jesus had been trying to explain to these guys the entire time that he was going to die, but they never really got it. They didn't understand the gravity, the depth of what he was talking about until it all came crashing down. Okay. And one of the reasons that they never really got it, part of this, there there are a lot of reasons why they never quite fully understood. But one of the primary reasons why they did not understand is there, there was a, a, let, let me, let me put it to you like this. There was a over obsession with seeing Jesus as this conquering King, the Messiah, the savior of now. They were captivated by the fact that he was the Savior, the King of Kings, a Lord whose domain was everlasting, that was unwavering, a resurrection of a nation. They were obsessed with this idea of returning back to prominence, of being back on top. That's my Jesus, of bringing them when you're low, bringing them up high. They were obsessed of coming back to fruition of all the things that they had lost, the Messiah. And so this wasn't just a rumor in the crowd. The Bible says that this expectation was so great. Do you know what happened? Scripture tells us, I think it's in John chapter, let me look. John chapter 6 verse 15. John 6 verse 15, that after Jesus broke the bread with the five loaves and two fishes, after he performed that miracle, do you know what they were planning on doing? They had actually planned to forcibly make him king. They were planning to pick this joker up, put him on their shoulders, and take him down to town square and crown him right then and there and have a coronation and begin to start the revolution against the Roman Empire. It was so bad that Jesus actually had to withdraw because it wasn't his time. But there was an over-obsession about having this, this, this kingdom now. This kingdom right now. And so... A majority, a majority of this, this rule, it wasn't just a rumor. It had even made its way into the circle of the disciples. The disciples had this expectation of this kingdom now. The fact that pretty soon this thing is going to blow up. 
Jesus, you're going to be ruling and reigning. You're going to be on top and everything is going to be below. Okay. And it made its way into the inner circle, meter, meaning the inner circle, meaning Peter, James, and John. Those were the inner circle of the disciples. And many, many theologians will tell you that they called the inner circle primarily because those three disciples spent a lot of, majority of their time away with Jesus in these isolated events. And so the, 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 the Bible says, as we open up in Mark chapter 10, we see, find that James and John okay, have kind of piggybacked on this theme, this theme that one day Jesus is going to be on top. And we find that James and John okay, have approached Jesus and they're now asking him for a favor. We have a request. We have a desire. When this thing blows up, when you start running things, when you get on top, James and John, me me and my brother James, I just want to sit on the right, John can sit on the left. And we want to be with you in authority. We, 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 We want to be your right hand men. James and John had been nicknamed by Jesus as the sons of thunder. And he had nicknamed the sons of thunder, many theologians think, primarily because these two were always arguing. They were always in the middle of some type of contention. You ever, anybody have any friends like that? Thundercats. You know, you can't take them with, with you nowhere. They always start some. You know, you're just trying to go into the store and walk out. They want to start some with the cashier. You charge us too much for these. Man, get on out of here, man. Come on. You put, I thought these were supposed to be on sale. Get out of here. Let's go. Thundercats. Always in the middle of something. Okay. The Bible says, in, you know, this is rightfully so. The Bible says, you know, in Luke chapter 9, verse 50, 54, the Bible says that they were going through, they were attempting to go through a Samaritan town. And, and, and Jesus says that, they, that James and John wanted to call down fire on the Samaritan town because they would not let them pass through. That's what I'm talking about. Thundercats. Okay. Jesus had to look at like, what, what, do you, you don't know what spirit you're of? What, what are you talking about? You want to burn these people up because they wouldn't let, let you pass in the town? And so on top of this expectation that's been going throughout the entire, entire New Testament that Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning, James and John expressed their own desires, their own agenda, which is to acquire seats of authority. We want power. We want clout. We want pull. Okay, notice this, this, who this is coming from now. This is not coming from anybody on the outside, but this is coming from people that are on the inside. This is coming from two of Jesus' most closest disciples. And they say this in verse 37. They say, grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in glory. And here's the third point that I want to bring to you this afternoon. Hear me now. Okay, here's something I want to call out. As you and I grow closer to Jesus it will begin to expose some of the aspects of our true nature. As you grow closer to Jesus, it will begin to expose some of the aspects of your true nature. What you're really after. What's your true motive? What's your agendas? Okay, you got a little bit of pride in there, Nick. You got a little bit of self... You don't have to agree with what he says now.
Got some control. Got some control issues in there, Nick. <laughs> Nick, you got some trust issues in there, Nick. <laughs> Hear me now, somebody. I'm speaking to somebody. Part of the process of us growing closer to God is what you're going to find is you're going to find that things will begin to be exposed and things that you didn't know was there. And what happens too oftentimes is what we do is some of us, some of us immediately begin to doubt our salvation and we begin to look at each other and begin to look at ourselves. And what we don't realize is that, no, you're growing closer to God. He's beginning to expose some of this stuff. It's not that you're running away from God. Okay. So notice this. As soon as the conviction starts, don't run from the conviction that's God speaking to you and he's calling you closer but what you but but what Satan has done what Satan has done is he will get in your ear and say you were never saved at all you just imagine that you were just rolling around in that carpet for no reason you just poured yourself out to that pastor for no reason. I don't, you, you're speaking in tongues. No, that wasn't speaking in tongues. You've spoken like that before. Okay. Do not let the enemy step into the situations in which God is beginning to expose. He's beginning to talk to you about some things. Revelation 3.19. Remember what it says. He says this to the church of Laodicea. As many as I love, I what? I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. As many as I love. He loves you. That's why he's rebuking you and chastening you and pulling you closer. But what we have a tendency to do, as soon as he's pulling us closer, we want to kick him apart. We, we, we want to get away from him. No. Okay. He's exposing these things to bring you closer into fellowship, into a relationship with him. Let me begin to ask somebody this afternoon, is your agenda, what are your expectations in line with kingdom work? Because here's what kingdom work is about. Kingdom work is primarily focused at this point. It's not about, about the work that we do out here. Kingdom work is not just about me getting a new job. Kingdom work is not just about me finding a better place to live. Kingdom work is not just about you showing up on a Sunday. Kingdom work is not just about you finding Mr. Right or finding Mrs. Right. What kingdom work is not about the external. Kingdom work is really about the internal. His kingdom changes hearts. It changes minds. It changes souls. And the reason that many of us miss the operation of the kingdom of God in our lives is because we're too busy looking out here and we have not evaluated what's happening in here. At some point, child of God, hear me on this one. At some point, you need to be evaluating is God's kingdom ruling and operating in your life, not simply by if your prayers are being answered if you've got a better job, if you've got a new house, but evaluate, is the kingdom in operation? Is my inside changing? Okay. Do I have a new change in the inside? Do I have a new mind frame? Do I have a new set of perspective, a new, new, new set of eyes how I look at problems, how I look at people, how I look at conflict, how I look at friction, how I look at frustrations? Do, do I have a joy that, that's unspeakable, that's full of glory? Do I have a peace that surpasses logic when right now I should be flipping out? Okay, understand, evaluate the kingdom of God operating in your lives by what is it changing, not on the outside, but what is it beginning to change on the inside. Things may not necessarily change around me, 
but there's a whole lot that's changed inside of me. And God will use your circumstances to change you on the inside. Verse 41 says this, continue on with Mark chapter 10. It says, and when the 10 heard it, okay, they began to be much displeased with James and John. And so you, you know what happened. A fight broke out, didn't it? It's just, an, I'm, I'm going to speak to you in the natural for a second, okay? You, you know how it is. You at work and you got that coworker. They always, uh, seem, to, they always seem to find something that the, the boss wants to do. They, they always they seem to just, you know, try to, is there anything you need right now? Okay. They, they always seem to kind of, they, 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 they have a way, you know, they, they go about themselves. They always seem to, they, 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 you, you know they're climbing the corporate ladder. They're playing the game. You know what I'm talking about? You know, and, and if it weren't for corporate, I'd be giving folks some looks, man, on the gifts. You know, you look at them like this. You know you didn't do that project. You know somebody else did it, you taking the credit for it. Now you're running up in there. You know, James, this is, this is what James and John are doing right now. And the Bible says a fight broke out. That's what happened. Uh, the, the rest of the 10 said, you play these jokers? The rest of the 10, a fight broke out. Pete, Peter's sitting there. I'm part of the inner circle too. James and John are jockeying for position. And the Bible says this thing got so bad. You know what Jesus had to do? He had to call all of them over. This is how bad it got. This wasn't just an isolated thing. Jesus actually had to stop this and call them over. And he says, you, you know that they which are counted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. Be, be so shall it not be among you, but whoever, who, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. In other words, here's what he says. He says, the greatest of my kingdom in the spiritual is in every sense the exact opposite of what great is in the kingdoms of the natural. It's not natural to wait in a, a, a line for a long time. It's not natural for the person to cut in front of you for you to just take that. It's not natural for you to be concerned with your coworker's career advancement over your, above your own. It's not natural for us to think of others above ourselves. Servanthood, watch this now. Servanthood is one of the simplest ways that begins to shift us from operating from the natural into the spiritual. You want God to speak to you? Clean some toilets real quick. Go down there and clean some toilets real quick. You want God to speak to you? Put yourself in a position of servanthood and watch real quickly how it shifts you from the natural and all real quickly. Now you're to a place where, oh, I can do it. Ooh, he's talking to me now. Oh, boy. Servanthood. This, hear me now, because this, this, this today is why our pulpits are filled with charlatans. Because what they've done is they've taken the ministry and they've leveraged it to build their own brand, to build their own kingdoms, and build their own wealth and their own material to the spiritual demise of everybody else. When the entire purpose of ministry, it never had to do with anything about you looking at me at all. That was never the entire purpose of ministry at all. Now, I want to correct something for a second here. Some of y'all are thinking, all right, Pastor, that's right. You were supposed to be serving us. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. We're going to take a look here. Ephesians 4.11. Because some of you missed it here. 
Because the purpose of the fivefold ministry, the Bible says in Ephesians 4.11, it says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Listen, listen for the reason. This is why he gave the church these fivefold ministries. He gave it to them for a reason. Okay, this is for the reason. For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body. It's the congregation that was actually supposed to do the ministry. The fivefold ministry was only designed to equip the body to do actually the ministry. What we've got it, if we've got it all wrong, and what we've done is we've put people on these pedestals in these pulpits and been looking up at them and been saying, tell me what to eat, tell me what to wear, tell me what to do. No, 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 no. The pastor's job was to equip you. You go out, you change your world. You step into your world and be a witness to somebody. You do the Bible studies. You are the minister. But we've got it all wrong. The litmus test within the kingdom of God of how we know that we're progressing in maturity in the kingdom of God is can identify, am I serving the church or is the church always serving me? Do you, in fact, value the people that are sitting around you, in front of you, by you, next to you, that if I were to tell you today that you will get nothing, nothing, you wouldn't get anything at all from, from what you come in for the next weeks, next couple weeks, would you still show up to church to be an edification or be a support for somebody else? If I told you for the next couple weeks you wouldn't get anything at all, would you still show up and give somebody else a word? Pray with somebody else. Put your hands on somebody else. Lift somebody else up. Pray with somebody else. I'm going to close here. I want to tell this. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not embellishing this, but when I say that Jesus, Jesus the focus on Jesus establishing an earthly kingdom dominated the lens of how people saw his earthly ministry. That, that went all the way up into the crucifixion. In fact, John chapter 18, verse 35, the Bible says that Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate is peppering him with question after question after question. And he begins to ask Jesus, he's saying, where are your people? Where are your people at? Okay, say something. Okay, where are your followers? Give me a statement. Give me something. Pilate's peppering Jesus with questions. Speak, tell me something, man. Stand up for your defense. Pilate is upset because he's looking for Jesus to say something, something so that we can use something. You've had all these accusations raised against you. To which Jesus responds to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered unto thee. My kingdom is not of this world. The Bible says that this entire perspective of consistently looking for Jesus, this Savior, to have this where's your kingdom at? Where's your throne at? Where, where are you ruling and reigning and where are you operating? This entire theme, it, it went all the way up into the crucifixion. Do you realize they wouldn't even let that man die and they were still asking for it to see his kingdom? You saved others, save yourselves. Get off the cross, man. Had I been Jesus, I'd been like, what do you think I'm doing? I'm saving you I would have looked at him and said it. I'm saving you right now. I, 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 my blood is being shed for your sins. The Bible says that Jesus is hanging on the cross and they're still yelling at him, save yourself. 
And I'll tie this back into the point that I wanted to make before is servanthood is then tied on what you value. You'll be a servant to what you value. And that right there is the key. Many of us wonder why we have problems serving God. The reason you have problems serving God is you have a problem with your value system. There's a problem with our value system. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And I want to begin to speak to somebody this afternoon and say, you know the reason he hung on that cross? The reason he was beaten? The reason he was bloodied? The reason he let them spit on him? The reason he took that cat of nine tails? He took it for you, Sister Diane. He took it for you. Sister Johnny, he took it for you. Brother Joe, he took it for you. The reason he went through all that and became a servant to all is because he valued you. He valued you. Let's stand. Let's stand. Luke chapter 14, verse 18 through 23. This is a parable here. So then said he unto them, a certain man made a great supper and bade many. Sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first one said unto him, I I have bought a piece of ground and I, must needs go to see it. I pray thee, ha- have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I, I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servants came and showed his lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the Lord said, Lord, it is done as thou commandest, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go, go into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Let me begin to explain my role today. I am here on behalf of the Master, the Savior, Jesus Christ. To simply invite you, I'm a servant, that's what I am. To simply invite you to his table, to his altar. Exchange your pain, exchange your shame your frustrations, your disappointments. And come, come see what the master has for you. Come see. Whatever highway and byway brought you into this place this afternoon. Whatever road of addiction, whatever road of shame, whatever road of letdown, marital strife, of emptiness, of loneliness, will you come? 
My role as servant of the gospel is simply to compel you to come to the master's table and dine. Come and dine. Will you come? You say, preacher, I, 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 don't, I don't know this Jesus. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what all that entails. I don't know what that means. I have three questions for you. Have you, have you repented of your sins? Have you been baptized in Jesus' name? Have you received the Holy Ghost? If you, if you haven't, I want to invite you this afternoon to, to come, come to the master's table and come. Those of you that are thirsty, that are, that are hungry, come. Anybody that's tired of being tired, sick of being sick, fed up with being fed up, Anybody says that, 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 that I'm hungry. I don't know what I'm hungry for, God. But I'm, I'm, I'm hungry. I invite you to come. And it says that I'm thirsty, Lord. I'm thirsty for what I, what I can't. I, I've tried everything I know, but I still thirst. Come. Come experience a love that you've never felt before. That's unwavering. That's unshakable. That's undeniable. Come experience a, a peace that surpasses logic in the middle of your storm. Come. Come experience a joy that they say is, is un, un, unspeakable. Unspeakable. That means you, you, I don't have the words, the vocabulary, the linguistics to articulate the joy that he gives. I bid you this afternoon, if you find yourself in any of those categories, come. Master has laid a table before you.